This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the Senior Editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining us. Randy Weingarten, head of the American Federation of Teachers, is receiving a good deal of coverage in the news media these days. Her union is being credited for the big win that took place in Chicago in the Democratic mayoral primary, and she's uh, thrown her heft behind uh, President Biden's re-election bid. And she's been accused by Republican members of Congress of keeping schools closed during COVID. So all these stories are adding up into making her one of the big players on the political scene at the contemporary time. Now, that's such a change from where unions were back in the 1960s when they didn't have the right to bargain collectively. They, they couldn't strike. They weren't a political influence in, in elections particularly. And what was true for teachers was true for other government workers, whether they were the sanitation workers, the police officers, or the firefighters. The people who worked for government tended to be on the sidelines. They couldn't strike. They couldn't dictate terms to politically elected authorities. And indeed, if you go back into the 19th century, they didn't even have job protection. When a new political party came to power, they were just patronage workers that could be thrown out on the streets. So where does all this begin and how does it develop? So now Sarah Anzia, a professor at the University of California at Berkeley, is looking at this question in some detail. She's looking at how public employees first got their civil service protection when they were no longer being treated just as patronage workers. And I'm really pleased to have Professor Anzia with me on the Education Exchange today. So Sarah, thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. It's really great to be here. Thanks, Paul, for having me. Well, Sarah, you're really pulling together some fascinating hidden documents uh, that tell us what was going on in the 19th century, material that people have overlooked for years. So what's your story? I've always been told that it was the muckrakers, those newspaper reporters that were the heroes of the story. And now you're telling me it's a little different, a bit more complicated than that. So what's what's going on here? Well, I, I need to start by saying this is a joint project with Jessica Traunstein at UC Merced, and she is an expert on machines and reformers, and among other things, um, and local politics in the present day. Um, but she and I started this project for precisely the reasons that you laid out in your introduction, which is we, as we look to the local politic landscape today, cities, school districts, um, one thing that is very clear is that the employees of cities and school districts, teachers, police officers, firefighters have a lot of uh, influence and they're very active in the politics of those places. And that is quite different from where things were 100 to 120 years ago, as you point out. We started this project wondering, how did that happen? How did that broad transformation happen over time? And the account we give in the working paper that I'm happy to discuss with you today is it's not that progressive era municipal reformers had nothing to do with it. Their role has been highlighted heavily in the existing research on this period. And many people have written about their, their effects on the development of these institutions like civil service and other cities and local. Well, I, I read a lot of books out there and every book told me the muckrakers were the storyline. They they exposed corruption in government. They said that politicians uh, had to be tamed. And the way to do that was to 
give civil service protection to um, public employees. Yes, and that's right. That's right. In many places, that was the way civil service came about. In addition, what Jessica and I are pointing to and are measuring and estimating is the role of the local government employees themselves. This is an account that has not been emphasized. And all of the research on how civil service developed in local and state government and the effects it had, there's surprisingly little discussion of the people who were most directly affected by those reforms and the people who stood to benefit most from them, the people who were employed by those cities and school districts. And so what we do is take a step back from the traditional story, which is when you think about public employees, usually the story starts in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. We go back further and we ask, what was happening with the employees before that point? And what we find and are able to document is that certain groups of city employees were active in local politics, acting in a coordinated fashion and organized much earlier than that, in the 1910s, the 1920s, 1930s. And we find evidence that they played a role in getting local governments and state governments to adopt civil service for local governments. Well, you focus a lot on the firefighters and you say the firefighters were the most popular government workers of the day and the firefighters were the people who, who led the cause for civil service reform uh, among municipal employees. So, but you know, I don't, I don't know. Firefighting? I mean, is that a, such a big deal? I mean, it, uh, the firefighters don't amount to anything uh, these days. So why are you focusing on the firefighters? They were a huge deal, Paul. And they're, they're still very or, well organized and active in city politics today. But actually, one thing we found that I think many people have not yet appreciated is just how important firefighters were and how well organized they were in the early part of the 20th century. So if we just go back, um, as we do in this paper, and- Well, and I now remember the Chicago yeah. fire. There was Yeah, that's right, that's right. Fire, so right? In, the, in the 19th century and early 20th century, especially, fire was a huge threat to cities because as cities were growing and densifying and buildings were increasing in height, fire posed a huge risk to the development and uh, well-being of these cities. And so there was a great interest in having firefighters and paid you know, professionalized fire departments that could handle this. And so the firefighters were hugely important to cities at that time. And as they are today, firefighters and police officers were a very large share of the uh, overall set of employees in cities. One thing there that were a lot fewer teachers in those days. As, as well, I, we didn't yes. have many school teachers. They've grown in numbers a lot, but if you, of course, they were women, and nobody paid much attention to the views of women. They couldn't even vote back in the before 1920, and in, in many places, most places. So I guess yeah, you would start looking at the male uh, segment of the of the workforce back then. Yeah, and I teachers actually, um, of course, teachers are far and away the largest group of public employees today. They are, their numbers, because you have school districts everywhere um, and every school district employs teachers, they are just far and away the largest category of, of local employees. At the same time, um, a lot of the way we have come to understand 
the development of collective bargaining in the public sector, the rise of public sector unions is focused on understanding teachers and the competition between the NEA and the AFT, the NEA starting as a professional association, where the AFT, of course, I, you know, being a union from the start and generating this competition, we are instead going back to firefighters because in part because people haven't paid as much attention to them, even though they were really important. And they, what we have found is that local governments were um, seeing organized firefighters that called themselves unions starting in the, the earliest years of the 20th century and especially picking up in the late 19-teens. In 1918, the International Association of Firefighters was formed by the American Federation of Labor and it really, really took off. And we have found example after example of these organized firefighters, these IAAFF locals, pushing for and claiming credit for the adoption of civil service laws at the local and state level. The International Association of Firefighters, the IAFF. So they did they push for civil service protection? Was that one of their camp one of their political issues? Yes, it was. And we can show many examples of that. So um, when in Salem, Oregon, in the 1930s, the local firefighters union handed out leaflets uh, pushing for a local civil service ordinance. In Wyoming, the city, the largest cities in Wyoming, four or five of them had IAFF locals by the late 1920s, early 1930s, and they worked together to push for a state law in Wyoming that would um, and did create and require civil service for firefighters in the state. Wyoming, the cutting edge of the labor movement in America. Is that what this you're is? That's what's so counterintuitive about this, Paul, that people don't think of places like West Virginia and Wyoming and Alabama as these and Kentucky as places where labor is at its strongest. You know, that's just not what the picture we would draw in the present day. But it is absolutely true that some of the earliest firefighters unions were started in Great Falls, Montana, Pueblo, Colorado, in part because they were close to mines uh, and steel mills and those workers were in unions. And it seems to us from the preliminary work we've done that that those unions in mines and steel mills may have helped to create um, and encourage unionization among firefighters in those places. There's a lot more work to be done on that topic, but it's very interesting and an entirely underexplored study. Well, where are you getting all this fugitive material that's hiding in plain sight? <laughs> well, we are, let's just say together, very curious and resourceful. So we've done a couple of things. We um, The project started with a digitization of data tables in the annual yearbooks of the International City County Management Association. So these are tables that are really difficult to wrestle with, but we did a lot of work to put together information on from these tables on when many cities adopted civil service, over a thousand cities. And also one of the great things about this resource is it tells us which cities had organized firefighters and other employees in these early years and when those organizations were started. So that's a key part of our analysis is this quantitative analysis of over a thousand cities where we show the link between having organized firefighters and early AFSCME chapters and the adoption of civil service. But the examples we find in newspapers. Um, we find 
from documentation on the websites of IAFF locals. Um, but, you know, the newspapers at this time really covered this and showed that firefighters were very active um, on this issue and provide plenty of examples of that. Well, listen, how do you convince those people who believe that it was a middle class reform, the civil service was, and not something that was imposed on the public by by unions? So, uh, you know, you may have found some union activity, but how do you know that's more important than the middle class efforts that were were being made out there? Aren't aren't the isn't civil service being adopted where the reformers are the most powerful? Yes, and the answer is both of them. So reformers clearly played a huge role in the push for civil service in certain places. In Massachusetts and New York, right after the federal government uh, first uh, adopted civil service through the Pendleton Act for some employees. In Iowa, this was clearly, the push for civil service was clearly a municipal reform effort. Um, it started with the Des Moines plan and then it spread to cities in Iowa. Those are the cases that fit that conventional wisdom, and we're not saying it's wrong. In addition, however, there are other places where clearly civil service was influenced by the activity of the city employees um, in West Virginia, in Washington State, in Wyoming. And so the, the story that we're able to tell through our research is that both of these things happened, and we think that the story of the employees gets just gets told less, and possibly in part because janitors firefighters, public sector workers weren't writing essays about how influential they were. Uh, whereas, of course, the, the municipal reform movement, um, a lot of those folks were academics and scholars who wrote a lot about it. So they are in the literature that we know and love um, on these topics. And so we really think we're adding something to uh, something important to our understanding of how this happened across the U.S., not just in certain in certain places. So this is this is a really uh, important addition, we think, to our understanding of how this happened. OK, so now how about the police? The you know, the, the best story I know about the police happened in Massachusetts, where uh, in Boston, the police went on strike, I think it was in the 1919 or something like that. And. Um, they all got fired by by the uh, by the governor, Kelvin Coolidge. He goes on. He's so popular because he fired policemen that he goes on to become the vice president and then the president of the United States. So it seems to me being anti-union was the political future. Uh, so so how does how did the police fit into your your story? It's a really good question. I'm going to back up and give one more answer to the previous question, and then I'll talk about the police. So in our paper, we do account for the role of the municipal reform movement to ensure that our, what we find as the role of employees is not just due to the efforts of municipal reformers. So when we account for a measure of the strength of municipal reformers in the cities we examined, we still find that places that had organized firefighters were more likely to get civil service. So we know it is not just, not only the role of the municipal reformers doing this. The police are a really interesting case because from the beginning, there was deep concern among folks in the labor movement in the American Federation of Labor of whether about whether police should be allowed to join the labor movement, given that they were called in to break up private sector labor strikes. Yet in 1919, as you mentioned, the AFL said, OK, we will issue charters to police unions. Uh, to police locals. And that year, there was the enormous Boston police strike. And that 
had the effect of, as many people say, setting back the organization and unionization of police officers for many years. And even today, police unions are much more fragmented than other groups of employees like teachers and firefighters. There is the Fraternal Order of Police, but there are other police organizations across the US. Um, and this is something that is not well understood or well studied. In our own research in this project, Jessica and I have sadly had to leave out the police from our quantitative data analysis because there aren't great data on whether cities had police unions or police organizations. However, there are some data. Um, clearly, many cities did have fraternal order of police locals. Um, and we have examples of cases such as in West Virginia, where the state law that was eventually passed to require uh, civil service for city employees, it applied first to police. And who was behind the passage of that law? The state president of the fraternal order of police. He had been working for two years to get this passed. So again, this is an untold, unappreciated part of the picture. And when we think about the spread of civil service adoption, so how does this uh, all come together? When do we have pretty much most government workers at the municipal level uh, uh, covered by civil service uh, legislation? Does this happen in the 30s or the 40s or 50s? When do we see sort of the new world of civil service in public sector employees? Well, it emerged gradually. It happened gradually. So there were waves. There were waves of civil service adoption right after the Pendleton Act. And I'm talking about civil service adoption in city government and municipal government right after the Pendleton Act in the late 19th century. Then in the 1910s, a slowdown in the 1930s. It really picked up in the 1930s. And then again, after World War II. A slowdown in the 1920s, did you mean? 1920s, that's right. Mm -hmm. Slowdown in the 1920s and then a pickup in the 30s during the that's right. I presume, yes. Yes, during the 1930s. And then after the uh, National Labor Relations Act in 1935, which didn't apply to government workers, of course, they were left out. But still, you see a growth in civil service adoption at the, after the after 1935 and then again after world war world war 2 and into the 1950s very gradual piecemeal and by 1962 it is true that a majority of local government cities had civil service but there were still a lot of places that did not even after 1962 which is the latest year where we can say for sure which cities had civil service and which did not and just to after nine, starting in the 1960s, the landscape really changed a lot because at that point, public employees were pushing for collective bargaining. That the conversation shifted from one focused on civil service to one focused on collective bargaining. And then, of course, in the years to follow, we saw the passage of state laws requiring collective bargaining for state and local. And then also, Kennedy, President Kennedy. Uh... Uh, issues an executive order. Uh, that executive order gives uh, collective bargaining rights to federal employees. Now, I don't think they can bargain over money, but they could bargain over, uh, you know, working conditions. So uh, I think that jumpstarts things a lot because all of a sudden the prestige of the federal government is behind collective bargaining. That's right. And Marty West deals with this very well in his work. It's been an important influence on our own work uh, in this project. But there were also some cities where uh, the local officials agreed to engage in collective bargaining with their employees. And then 
In Wisconsin, Joseph Slater, a historian who's written, who has a really nice book on the history of public sector employees, shows that in Wisconsin, public employees were pushing for many years for the fir that first state law requiring collective bargaining, which was passed in 1959, that they were really important to that. So yes, the, the move by Kennedy at the federal level was important, and these, these individual developments and cities and states across the country also fueled what came later. So what are the consequences of all of this? So it's a nice historical account. It does show that unions played a role in civil service protection being extended uh, across the country. Uh, it does show that the ground was being prepared for unionization. But so what are the consequences for municipal government today? Are, are public sector employees essential for local government or are they a threat to local government? That's a big question, Paul. And to start, I will say that our paper that I'm excited to talk about today doesn't get up to that point. So our analysis stops at 1940 for a lot of different reasons, but we are really interested in taking this into the next stage to try to understand how all of this all of these developments that came before the rise of civil service, the organization of local employees helped to possibly contribute to the rise of collective bargaining. That's a next stage of our project. And where I land, and I can speak for myself and can't necessarily speak for um, Jessica, my co-author on this, is that, look, as we look at local politics today, a lot of the concerns that we hear about and that people raise have to do with the employees, various whether employees have the resources they need to do their jobs or how employees are doing their jobs. So uh, how police officers are working, how teachers are teaching kids. What about firefighters and the equipment they have could, uh, given the budget constraints, many local governments face. These concerns are about local government and it, how well it is able to do the things that we want local government to do. And the concerns are rooted in various aspects of the employees and how they do their work and the resources they have. So thinking about how we came to this point today where the employees themselves are very well organized and some of the barriers to making changes have to do with well the employees themselves are well organized and play a big role in shaping those decisions our project is coming to explain how we transition to this point now the big takeaways um that's complicated that's complicated. Um, and I think that we are very interested in trying to understand the next stage of development from the civil service adoption to the rise of collective bargaining and the consequences for government effectiveness. So, you know, there's a lot of talk about government pensions uh, aren't being funded adequately by uh, city governments, that the costs of medical uh, uh, benefits are are escalating and and the and the coverage the policies can't be changed they can't be modified so you've got this this segment of the financial structure that seems at least in some cities out of control like it's going up every year and in cities right now they have had all the covid relief that's covered the the financial cost but that's coming to an end is you know within a year or so are, are we on the verge of a catastrophe in urban government because we don't have the resources to pay employees all the commitments that have been made to them. A lot of the work I have been doing 
outside of the project that um, I just talked about, co-authored with Jessica, is focused on precisely these questions. And I just had a piece come out uh, in City Journal in which I outlined the, in California in particular, but I think a lot of this is not just California, the, the problems of structural deficits that local governments are facing, cities and school districts, and how those came about and the problems it creates for the people who are charged with governing. The, and, um, and just to take uh, a title from some of your old work, can, you, can the government govern? This is the question at hand. Because school districts, if their enrollment is declining, and we could talk about all of the different contributors to that, enrollment is declining, well, that affects the funds that come from the state to the school districts. And yet, School districts have a really difficult time figuring out how to adjust. Does it mean that you need fewer teachers, fewer support staff, um, given that the resources are shrinking? Yet those decisions are incredibly painful. And anytime a school district tries to make decisions along those lines, should we close schools? Should we reduce staffing? Well, the employees who are very well organized, teachers unions are there to resist those changes. Right? because it affects their membership, it affects their dues, it affects their funding. Um, and so this is a big political challenge where you see school boards and city councils unable to make decisions to um, change with the changing circumstances they're facing. The same thing is happening in cities and retirement costs are a huge part of this. Cities and school districts and other state and local governments are seeing their retirement costs grow, which is the result of decades of decision-making, increases in benefits, um, choices to underfund their pensions in a variety of ways. Terry Moe and I have, and others have done a lot of work on the political contributors to this. The consequence of this though- And people are living longer, that's the problem. And people are living longer. Uh, but those things can be factored in. There are models for that, right? But decisions to not adjust those um, and make more contributions uh, on a regular basis to pay for that, those are political decisions. And what's happening now is that around the country, governments are playing catch up. They're having to contribute more to pay for underfunding of the past. This is, um, in addition, Healthcare has gotten more expensive. And so what this has done is put enormous pressure on government budgets. So this limits what's available for salary increases, for hiring more folks, precisely at a time when the needs have gone up. Kids are coming back from the pandemic and need more resources. Well, the money isn't there for that, right? Because um, school budgets are constrained. If uh, there are increases in crime and there's an interest in hiring or training more police officers. Well, okay, that's hard to do because um, not only uh, is it difficult to recruit police, police officers in this climate, but also city budgets are constrained. They, these are some of the central challenges facing local governments today. And it's not totally clear how it's all gonna get resolved because the retirement costs are coming. They're here and they're not going away. I don't think there's gonna be a big federal bailout. That's, uh, you know, I'll. I don't think that is that is forthcoming. And so I think that we're going to continue to see the squeeze. And this really puts limits on what local governments are able to do. Well, I'm, uh, I, I hate to end on that uh, sort of disappointing note, but I think that's the reality we face. And so thank you very much, Sarah, for joining me on the Education Exchange. Thanks very much, Paul, for having me.
Thank you for joining me. I have been speaking with Sarah Anzia, a political scientist at the University of California at Berkeley, who studies the role played by public sector workers in our big cities and is the co-author of a recent study on the origins of the civil service movement. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new podcast released on the Education Next website every Monday at noon Eastern time.